I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. It's the summer of 2123. You and the kids have decided to take a big vacation to the moon. There won't be any water parks, but your days will be filled with exploring craters and bouncing around in your spacesuit and walking in places that astronauts have walked before you. Our guest, astronomer Philip Plate, writes in his new book that the day may come when, quote, we can travel the solar system on a whim. So what would that be like? Dr. Plate has mixed science and imagination to answer that question in a delightful new book titled Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe, and we found him in Seattle. Welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me on. So there we are on the moon. And one of the first things that really weirded me out in your book was when you said the sky will be pitch black other than the sun. So we have this blazing yellow light in a dark, dark sky. Why? Well, the moon has no atmosphere and that's really it. Uh, it's small and uh, the sun heats it up. And so if it, if it ever did have an atmosphere when it formed, it would have blown away. So now, billions of years later, the moon is just this sort of barren rock out there. And without that, uh, without that air to scatter light, you don't have a bright sky. On Earth, sunlight hits our atmosphere and gets smeared all around. So everywhere you look, you see this bright sky, basically. But on the moon, nothing. So it's black everywhere, even when the sun is up. So during the day, you have a black sky. So it, it would be kind of like this little, or maybe not so little, large egg yolk hanging in a totally dark sky. I mean, does it mean that it would be if you, if you were somewhere where the sun wasn't shining directly on you, you couldn't really see where you were going? That's exactly right. If you were behind a big boulder, for example, something like this, say the size of a house, and you were in its shadow, it would be really hard to see the ground in front of you because it would be so inky black. Now, the sun is up and it's lighting up the landscape around you. So you'll see gray undulating rocks and, and dust and things like that. Um, but the shadow right beneath you will be very, very black. It, it might be illuminated a little bit from all that other stuff that's lit up by the sun. But in general, yeah, it's, it's pretty dark. And, and you know what? I'm going to say this too, because this is something that people think too, that the sun is yellow. It's, it's not really yellow. It never has been. <laughs> the, the light that the sun emits is coming at us with all different colors, literally the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and, and violet. And our eyes perceive that as white. And when we see it in a blue sky, it may look a little bit yellow because of contrast. But on the moon, if you were to look up and look at the sun, it would, it would just look white. Even weirder than I thought. Okay, so let's <laughs> describe what the journey up to the moon is going to be like. I, I want to know if we're going to be crammed into tiny seats like we are on today's airplanes, clutching our little bags of peanuts and cups of Coke while the kids are whining. I'm bored. There's nothing to do. Is that what it's going to be like? Probably. No, I don't know, actually. Um, uh, for one thing, currently right now, the way we use rockets is it takes a long time to get to the moon. You have a chemical rocket. You're mixing two things, say hydrogen and oxygen. When you combine them, you get a lot of heat that expands a gas, and then you 
throw that out the back of the rocket, basically. That's how rockets work. So that pushes on you and you go to the moon. And that has sort of an upper limit on how fast you can go. And it the moon's a long way away. It's almost a quarter of a million miles away. So it takes three days, something like that. So if you're, if you're jammed into a seat with screaming kids, that's going to be misery for a long time. So hopefully <laughs> there will be in the future, uh, it'll be more like maybe a cruise ship. So you'll have maybe your own cabin, something like that. Uh, you can wander around. There'll be things to do. Perhaps by then we'll be able to get there faster. I don't know. It's hard to predict the future in detail in, in situations like this. But hopefully, you know, as as things evolve and and we get better at space travel and it becomes more routine, things like that will be accommodated. You know, 400 years ago, if you wanted to go from Europe to America on a boat, that wasn't the most comfortable of accommodations. But as time went on, things got a little bit better. So hopefully it'll be the same thing here. So as you can hear in the introduction, Dr. Plate, I, I am projecting only 100 years into the future. Is that timeline right? Is it, I mean, will, will space travel be much more accessible to more of us in less time, more time? What do you think? Oh, this is a sucker's game. You're trying to reel me in here. Uh, I get asked this a lot, actually. You know, what's space travel going to be like in 20 years? And I have to say, I don't know, right? Here's the thing. We have these big space agencies, NASA, the European Space Agency, the Canadian and, and Japanese space agencies, and, and a lot of other governments are getting involved because historically, and, and even today, space travel is super expensive. It just costs a lot of money to build a rocket and go someplace. And it's only been in the past few years that companies have started to do this, notably SpaceX, uh, Blue Origin, and, and things like that. And note that these are also backed by billions of dollars by billionaires. So it is very, very expensive. If a government agency is, is funding this sort of thing, they are funded by the public and politicians. And we reelect these politicians every few years. And that's why it has taken us so long, basically, to get back to the moon. The political winds change, politicians change their minds, they fund different things, and it becomes very, very difficult to maintain something as expensive as a space program. Now, I will add here that in the scheme of things, space programs are not that expensive. The amount of money we spend on NASA is like a fluctuation in what the military spends. You know, they probably have a room with, with dollar bills in the Pentagon that could fund NASA for a year. So we have to have our <laughs> priorities straight here. But either way, it still costs hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. So it, it's difficult to know where we're going to be in a few years. Um, even even when SpaceX was just starting to launch uh, rockets, it didn't look good. You know, they were blowing up a lot of rockets. Things weren't going well. Uh, and now uh, they're launching this Falcon 9 rocket all the time. It's probably the most successful rocket in history. So more than just a few years in the future, it is re it's like the weather. It's just super hard to predict what's going to happen because there's so many variables involved. Okay, since you've brought up NASA, I, I want to talk a little bit about what NASA Director Bill Nelson recently announced. He told America who the crew for the new moon mission Artemis was going to be, and I thought we could listen to a little bit of that announcement and how excited Director Nelson really is about this. Let's listen. It's a mission that is significant in many ways. 
it's a demonstration of our ability to push the boundaries of human achievement. It's a testament to the underwavering passion of the team that will make it possible. And it's a message to the world. We choose to go back to the moon and then on to Mars, and we're going to do it together. Because in the 21st century, NASA explores the cosmos with international partners. So, Dr. Play, do you agree with all the aspirational language there? Is that, is that what Artemis is? Is that what it represents? That's certainly what it's planned to be. Um, the, the thing, I, I have a, issues with how we're going to the moon and all that sort of thing, and we can talk about that. But one thing I like about mm -hmm. Artemis is that it is from the beginning different than the idea of Apollo. And when I was a kid, Apollo was the big thing. I actually remember, kind of, sort of, I was, I was very young, uh, watching the Apollo 11 moon landing. And I, I actually went down to Florida with my family when I was a kid to see Apollo 15 launch. So that was a big deal to me. And it actually kind of set my course for my career, to be honest. But Apollo, if you ask yourself, why did we go to the moon with Apollo? The answer, you can answer it pretty simply, to beat the Russians the Soviet Union and the United States were in a space race and we had to beat those dirty commies. So we really got moving, put a lot of money into this and sent a rocket to the moon. And the problem with the space race is that what happens after you win a race, you go home, right? It, it, there's no sustainability there. So that's kind of what happened after, after the first landing, the, the public lost interest. So of course the politicians sort of started pulling away from it. And we only went back a few more times. And it was very expensive and it was difficult to stay there for very long. And even though this was one of the most wonderful things that humanity has ever done is go to another world and land on it and come back again, uh, it was never sustainable and it was never designed to be. In fact, in, in sort of the, the, the people who uh, talk about this sort of thing, we have a phrase called flags and footprints, where you just go there, you plant your flag, you leave a few footprints and you come home. Artemis is different. Mm -hmm. It is designed from the start to be sustainable. For one thing, uh, we're partnering with the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency to go back. So there's international cooperation. Uh, it's not simply let's get there and come back. The idea is to go there, look around, uh, really start thinking about how we can continue to go back in a way that keeps humanity on the moon. Uh, one of the big ideas is to go to the South Pole of the moon. There are craters there that are very deep and the sunlight just never gets down in there. It's permanently cold and shadowed. And we found a lot of evidence, fairly convincing evidence that there's a lot of water in the craters there in the form of ice. And if there's water there, that means you can mine it, you can melt it and drink it. You can break it up into hydrogen and oxygen. So you have air and fuel, a lot of good stuff there. So the idea of just going there to explore shows that NASA is intending to go to the moon to stay. And that's the part of this I really, really like. Okay, I have many, many questions about what you've just said. It's my, <laughs> it's my understanding too, that, <laughs> that the crew of Artemis is not actually going to land on the moon. So what are, they, what are they looking for? What are they doing? Right. So we haven't gone to the moon in a long time and we're using a lot of new technology. So you can't just 
you can't just go to the moon and land and look around and everybody's happy. Uh, you have to test this new technology. And, and the biggest part of this right now is the space launch system. This is this gigantic rocket uh, that launched last year uh, and sent a capsule around the moon and back to Earth. And that launch, Artemis 1, was uncrewed. There, there was nobody on board, but that was to test out this gigantic Orion capsule, which is like the Apollo capsule, but but bigger and has more capacity. Uh, you have to test out the rocket. You have to test out the navigation, the communication systems, all of this stuff. So that was that was a, an uncrewed mission, and it came back, and things seemed to have worked pretty well. The next one is going to be these these four folks, these astronauts who are going to get sent around the moon on a very similar trajectory. They'll they'll go around the moon and then come back to Earth, and that'll test out all of the systems to support people. And then the plan is Artemis three, which is technically scheduled for 2025. We'll, we'll see. I'm sure there will be delays. There always are. Uh, and that will be to actually put humans on the moon. So you want to do this step-by-step. We did this with Apollo. The early Apollos tested out all the technology. Apollo 8 went around the moon and then back to Earth. And then it wasn't until Apollo 11 that they landed. So it's similar to that. You said a minute ago that you have some issues about, I think you said, how we're going to the moon. Why? I'm not a big fan of the Space Launch System rocket, uh, which is called SLS. Uh, It's very, very expensive. Uh, The estimates of how much it costs are, you know, as little as $2 billion, that's with a B, per launch. And it could cost as much as $4 billion total per launch. And it's so complicated and so difficult to build that we can't launch this thing any better than once per year. And that's, that's at the top speed. So it's likely to take even longer to, uh, to get one launch and then build another rocket and, and launch a second one. So I've had some issues with this all along. I think it's been way too expensive, way too difficult, uh, and it's probably not the right way to go. However, it is what NASA has. NASA may, there, there may be people at NASA who love SLS. There may be engineers who don't, but it's what the politicians have said you have to do. And NASA despite you know being this brilliant organization filled with really smart, amazing people. NASA really is, it, it has earned that reputation. When you say you're a NASA scientist, that's a big deal. Um, but it's funded by the government. And so, again, those winds of politics change. And if somebody says you have to do this, NASA has, NASA has to do it. So uh, I don't think it's the best way to go to the moon. I'm, I'm looking at SpaceX with their big Starship rocket, the first launch didn't go as well as it could have, but it wasn't a complete mm-hmm. disaster, even though the rocket blew up. They, did, they were able to test a lot of the systems. It is possible that in the next few years, uh, Starship will be working really well, and it will cost a whole lot less than Artemis. I wouldn't bet against SpaceX. Their Falcon 9 rocket didn't do well the first few flights, but now no, nobody even thinks about that. The fact is they launch that thing practically on a weekly basis, and it's an incredibly reliable rocket. So I wouldn't count SpaceX out of this yet. We also heard uh, Director Nelson talking about Mars. And, and I guess I wonder how much of this effort to get back to the moon is really about Mars. And is that, I mean, is that how it should be? Do you think we ought to be aspiring to get back to the moon so the real goal can be to get to Mars? It's a little of both. Um, The moon in itself is a wonderful target for exploration. Uh, The Apollo missions 
brought back a lot of rocks from the moon and did a lot of uh, testing of the environment there. And we learned a lot about the moon, how it formed. I mean, we didn't know how the moon came to be. There were some ideas uh, before Apollo, but the Apollo missions really sort of nailed the idea that something huge impacted the Earth long ago, blasted a lot of material into space, and that coalesced to form the moon. And that informs us a lot about the Earth. The, the moon had a profound influence on the Earth billions of years ago. It still does. Uh, and so the Apollo missions really taught us a lot about that. And that was just just a taste because we were only there for a few days total. Uh, so the idea of going back to the moon and, and going there to stay, it's impossible to predict what we're going to learn. So in and of itself, the moon's a great... And Mars, I think, is also a, a worthy destination. We're sending a lot of probes there uh, that are robotic to orbit Mars, to land on Mars, to rove around Mars. There's a helicopter on Mars right now. I don't think that's getting enough press. Uh, it, it's terrific. It, it, it's flying around and, and helping the Perseverance rover figure out where to go next and uh, showing us how we can fly around on Mars. It's pretty amazing. Uh, if we send people there, it's a, it's, it's, it's a funny trade-off. Robots are not nearly as expensive as sending people because people have this inconvenient need to eat and breathe and poop and do things like that. We have to support people with the biological bags of glop, and it takes a lot to support that. Robots are a lot cheaper, but robots don't have imagination. And sure, we can send images back pretty, pretty uh, efficiently now and have people look at them and figure out where the robots can go, these, these rovers or things like that. But it's hard to really get context. If you are a human standing on Mars, you process a vast amount of information with your brain a lot more efficiently. And, and so you can do a lot more by having people there. And I just, I like the idea of exploring other worlds. I think it's something that we do. We humans are curious. We need to do it well. We need to do it correctly. Uh, again, that word sustainably. Uh, but I think when it's done well, it, 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 it's uh, among the best things that we do as, as long as we do it right. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show, and it's a show where readers meet writers. And today it's astronomer Dr. Philip Plate. He's got a new book out called Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe. And we're talking about what it would be like to actually be in some of these places in the universe, walking around the moon, landing on Mars, going further out and farther afield, and we're also talking about some of the some of the exciting news that's coming out of NASA, the the research that's coming back, the probes that are to, out in Mars and beyond, and what science is learning about the universe, so that robots and humans can get out there. All right, um, so Philip, let's let's put ourselves back in the summer of 2023 where we started, and we're walking around the moon. And we're encountering a lot of craters, and I find craters very, very fascinating. And I didn't know this until I read your book. There are so many craters on the moon because asteroids come flying at the moon tens of thousands of miles per hour. Do I have this right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the big difference between the moon and the Earth, as, as we talked about earlier, is the moon does not have an atmosphere, and the Earth does. So out in space, there are asteroids of all different sizes, as small as a, a grain of sand and, and even smaller. 
out to enormous ones that are hundreds of miles across. And, and some of these things impact other worlds. They impact Earth, they impact the moon, Mars, everything. Everything gets hit over time. Now on Earth, we have this atmosphere and it prevents smaller ones from hitting the ground. They burn up. And you can see that as a shooting star, as a meteor. But on the moon, there's no atmosphere. So even these little ones impact the ground. And on the Earth, big ones can still get through our atmosphere. And we have seen that. There was one that uh, blew up over Russia just a few years ago, uh, as well as you know the dinosaur killer that I think most people know about. This immense uh, asteroid is probably about six miles across that slammed into wow. basically the Yucatan Peninsula 66 million years ago and, and destroyed 75% of all species on Earth. Those are very, very, very rare. Smaller impacts happen all the time. Uh, on Earth, we have erosion. Uh, the air moves, water moves. We have uh, volcanoes and tectonics. So older craters get erased. There are only something like a couple of hundred craters on the Earth that we have recognized as being from impacts because uh, they've all eroded away. Well, on the moon, there's none of that. So it's basically this, this time capsule of every single impact that's ever happened. Uh, and over billions of years, that means billions of impacts. So if you were to stand on the surface of the moon, everywhere you look, essentially, you will see craters, uh, small ones, big ones, uh, all different sizes. It is literally saturated. It's to the point where if you had, uh, oh, I don't know, something 100 yards across, a decent sized asteroid impact, it would probably erase more craters than it would create. So yeah, that's, that's, how, wow. that's how many craters there are on the moon. Okay, so what happens if I'm out on a crater sightseeing walk and one of these asteroids comes flying at the surface of the moon? I mean, it, that sounds like a real danger for existing in any amount of time up on the moon. Is it? What you do at that moment is not really up to you. What I hope you've done before is made sure your affairs are in order. Um, it, it depends. Uh, <laughs> the, moon is, the moon is hit uh, constantly by a rain of micrometeoroids. So we're talking about things that are so small, you might need a microscope to see them. Uh, these are, are not hugely dangerous uh, because they're so small and, and the impacts on, from them are, are, are not a big deal. Uh, something the size of a grain of sand, on the other hand, could put a hole in your spacesuit. So uh, one would hope that you're mm. not alone. There's somebody there with you. They have a meteorite patch kit. Um, we have these on on our uh, space capsules. If, if if there's a hole that's punched in the in the side of the spacecraft, you can slap a patch over it and adhere it, and that way you don't lose your air. And you better hope it doesn't hit something important. Uh, this is a fairly rare event. You know, we've had the space station up now for oh, over 20 years. It's been continuously occupied. And there have been some incidents, but nothing so serious that it's been um, uh, considered immediately life-threatening. So it's not something you have to panic about, but it's something you should be prepared about. Just like if you go on an ocean cruise, they have a, an emergency drill at the beginning of the cruise. Here's what you do. You know, here, find your life preserver, find the place you have to go. Uh, it, it's that going to be that sort of thing. Um, having a, an impact near you on the moon uh, that's going to blow out debris. So even if it's uh, some distance away, you might still be in trouble. Uh, and if it's, you know, if it's really big, uh, yeah, it probably doesn't matter what you do. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> as, as exciting as that would be to see, I'll tell you what, you're going to get your money's yeah. worth from that that vacation. Uh, it's not something, you you know, it's, it's on a boat, you don't want to see another, you know, you don't want to see yourself ramming an iceberg. It's, it would be exciting, but not not really what you paid for. 
Okay, let's talk about being sightseers on Mars. You say something really interesting about the red planet. It was Earth-like before Earth was Earth-like. That's the duality of Mars in a nutshell, habitable and inhospitable. Explain. Mars is uh, farther from the sun than the Earth is. It's the fourth rock from the sun. And it's smaller than Earth is. And when the planets first formed, they were very hot and probably covered in boiling rock and lava. And Earth took longer to cool than Mars did. So Mars was probably a solid object before Earth was. And we have a lot of evidence now that it had a thicker atmosphere. Today, its atmosphere is so thin that uh, you'd have to be three times higher than Mount Everest on Earth to match the atmosphere there. It's extremely thin. Uh, there's no water on Mars, at least not uh, liquid water. There's lots of uh, frozen water, ice at the poles and under the surface, uh, but nothing liquid, and it's cold. Uh, but it wasn't always the case. We see a lot of evidence of flowing water on Mars a long time ago. Dried up riverbeds, uh, evidence maybe of oceans, uh, certainly uh, evidence of lakes. The Perseverance rover is in a crater uh, called a, a Jezero Crater. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and there's a ton of evidence that this was a lake billions of years ago. And something happened to Mars, and we don't know what exactly, that caused its uh, atmosphere to go away and the water to all boil off. And now it's dry and dead. But billions of years ago, it may have had Earth-like conditions. And I, what I mean by that is conditions like now, a thick atmosphere, water on the surface, very clement conditions before Earth actually had those. Earth had a, a terrible atmosphere for, for life or at least for our kind of life, for a long time, for hundreds of millions of years or a billion years. There was life on Earth, but it wasn't quite like, like we are today. So Mars, billions of years ago, looked like Earth does today. At least we think so. Not 100% sure. So it, it's, it's an interesting place. It used to be Earth-like. Now it isn't. Uh, what happened? Could something like that happen to Earth? We're look, it's one of the reasons we're investigating Mars. We're looking into this mostly, I mean, the scientific curiosity, again, is what's driving us. But, you know, we can be a little self-serving about this. You know, we want to know more about Earth. We want to know more about our environment. And one of the best ways to do that is to look elsewhere so we can see how things are different there and why things are the way they are here. You mentioned the helicopter ingenuity that is buzzing around the surface of of Mars. I assume it's seeing, the, well, actually... It's been a while since I've looked at some of the pictures that are coming back from Ingenuity. Is it seeing these huge volcanoes that you describe on Mars? And what else is it previewing that will end up being really important? So the Perseverance rover um, is an extremely capable rover that is sent to Mars to look for not so much life itself, but to investigate the environment on Mars to see if a, it could support life now, and B, maybe supported life billions of years ago. And so it, it, it's doing a lot of different things, taking samples and, and um, investigating the chemical uh, minerals and everything like that in the rocks. And it also brought this little helicopter, a drone called Ingenuity, that uh, has these really long blades. They're a couple of yards across, something like that, that spin incredibly rapidly because the atmosphere is so thin. You need to have these things spinning a lot to provide lift. 
the idea of ingenuity was to just test the technology and hope it works. And, and if you get some science out of it, great, that's a bonus. Um, so it's not actually going up very high. It's, it's going up you know, 30 yards, 40 yards, something like that, flying ahead of Perseverance to investigate the territory that the rover's about to go to and to get sort of a, well, a bird's eye view of the, uh, of, of the landscape around it. Because it's, it's great that you have a rover looking around, but if you can get up even just a little bit and look around and, and, and see the, uh, the environment around it, you can see the, the context of, of where the rover is. So it, it's not going very far. I think the farthest it's gone is about 100 yards, something like that. Mm, uh, so it's not okay. getting up so high that it can see things like the volcanoes, which are much, much farther away. Those are things that we have seen from, um, from orbit, for example. And uh, yeah, these volcanoes are immense. Olympus Mons is you know, roughly uh, the size of the state of Nebraska. So this is a very, very, very wide volcano. Wow. Uh, it's immense. It's, it's far larger than um, any volcano on Earth. And in fact, as far as we know, it's the largest volcano in the solar system. Um, and, and these things were active billions of years ago. And there's, there's pretty good evidence, very convincing evidence that there is some tectonic activity going on on Mars today. There was another lander called InSight, which was equipped with basically uh, an earthquake monitoring station, amongst other things. And it was it has a seismograph. It had a seismograph. The, the, the mission is, is complete. It's, it's been shut off. But it measured lots and lots and lots of, well, Mars quakes, not earthquakes, because you're on Mars. So it was measuring these Mars quakes. And we've learned a lot about things like current tectonic activity on Mars. These quakes travel through the planet and bounce around and then come back and be detected. And you can determine what's inside of Mars, the, the, the size and density of its core, even though it's you know, thousands of miles deep. Uh, it, it's amazing what you can do just by simply putting a few scientific instruments on the planet. And so we're learning about these immense volcanic systems and how they're still affecting Mars today. You're listening to Dr. Philip Plate. He's an astronomer and the author of the new book, Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe to the universe we are sightseeing in the universe together we've been to the moon we've been to mars i want to go further out here in in just a minute here but his book is really about this idea of uh, you are there you land on the moon and this is what it's like you take a vacation to mars and this is what it's like we've also talked about some of the news that's coming out of NASA, what, uh, what the probes in Mars and this little Ingenuity helicopter are doing, why a crew on Artemis is headed back to orbit around the moon. So uh, if, if you haven't been able to catch the whole show, I'd say go back and listen. Some really interesting info here. Uh, so Dr. Play, um, I want to talk about getting a little further out. And uh, I've decided after reading your book that I'm going to be headed to Saturn because I love this idea about the leap of faith that's required from the cruiser to the gondola to get there. <laughs> and I just love the idea of what I'm going to see <laughs> as I stand on the surface of Saturn. So tell me about that. How do I get there first? Describe that. So Saturn is what we call a gas giant. It's an immense planet about nine or 10 times wider than Earth. So it's quite large. Uh, it's mostly atmosphere. When you look at Saturn, there's no surface there. It's just atmosphere. So you're seeing the tops of the clouds when you're looking at pictures of Saturn. Getting there 
is difficult enough. It's 600 million miles from the sun. It is a long way out. Uh, when you're there, the sun is so far away, it, it's shining at less than 1% the brightness it does on Earth, and it's cold. So just getting there is difficult. It, it would take years. The, the Cassini spacecraft, which was this tremendously successful mission uh, that orbited Saturn for 13 years, it took a decade just to get there. You know, it's 20 years to develop this machine and build it. And then you launch it on a rocket. And then you still have to wait 10 more years to get there because it just takes a long time because Saturn's so far away. Now, hopefully, 100 years from now, now you know, whatever, whatever cruise line is building rockets, they have some way of getting there faster. <laughs> so you're not spending 10 years of your life to get to your vacation destiny. Um, but when you get there, it would be amazing. Saturn has a fleet of really weird moons that it would be really fun to, to see up close. It's got these gorgeous rings uh, that are very complex and would provide just uh, so many wonders over and over again as you flew over them. And uh, one of the things I wrote, one of the reasons I wrote this book, one of the things I wanted to do when I wrote it was not just to simply describe this. You're flying over Saturn's rings. You see this and that and the other thing. I wanted to really immerse the reader in the experience there. So I've, I've written it in a way where I'm saying, you see this, you experience this, you, you look over here and you see that. And I really wanted to have it feel like you're there flying over Saturn and, and getting an idea of, of, of what it is to actually be there, to, to be immersed in it. Uh, and one of the things I, I really enjoyed thinking about was being inside Saturn's atmosphere and looking up to see the rings. And it's not something we've ever done. None of our space probes have ever really gotten that close to Saturn in a, in a way that they can look up and see the rings and see the stars and see the moon circling like, like you can, say, from Earth on a nice night and go out and look up and see the stars. Uh, so how would you do that if there's no surface, there's no land to land on with Saturn? And I thought, well, you'd have to float. You'd have to be in a balloon of some sort. And this is not an original idea with me. This has been thought about before. But it occurs to me, you know, Saturn, as you get deeper into its atmosphere, it gets thicker and thicker and eventually gets very hot and dense. And by the time you're that far down into Saturn, you're in a heap of trouble because that atmosphere is going to crush you and melt you. But if you're higher up, you can be where the atmospheric pressure is similar to sea level on Earth. So you can't breathe it because it's hydrogen and helium and it's very cold, but you could be in a gondola that is sealed so that you can keep it warm, um, pressurized mm -hmm. to keep the atmosphere of, of, of Saturn out. But it wouldn't have to be like being in a, like one of these deep sea vehicles where you're fighting the atmosphere because the pressure is the same. You could float under a hydrogen balloon or a helium balloon. Hydrogen, There's no oxygen in, in Saturn's atmosphere. So a hydrogen balloon is perfectly safe. It can't ignite and catch on fire. So you have this immense dirigible, basically, a zeppelin, with a gondola hanging underneath of, you know, something made of metal uh, with windows in it, maybe even um, some sort of uh, crystal that you can see through. And you can look around and look at the clouds below you, look up and see these rings arcing across the sky, the shadow of the planet cutting out a piece of the rings, uh, the, the moons moving around uh, hour after hour. Saturn spins once every 10 hours, roughly, so its day is much faster than Earth's day. So the stars would rise and set much more quickly. And you would be able to watch all this uh, fairly rapidly without having to like stay up all night. So I, I love this idea of, <laughs> of taking a, you know, a day cruise to Saturn and, and being able to see all this. I think it would be extremely <laughs> romantic and a very popular destination. 
Laying back, sipping a little champagne, looking up at the rings. I, I, I love your description here in the book. Um, you, you say, it's hard to grasp just how thin the rings are. If you took a piece of standard printing paper, 8 by 5 by 11 inches, and scaled it up to the same diameter as Saturn's rings, the paper would be thicker. We say that something is paper thin, but really we should say it's Saturn's rings thin. Will you describe what Galileo saw of Saturn when he looked up in his telescope, in his rudimentary telescope? Yeah, you know, Saturn is the faintest of the naked eye planets. Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, these are all fairly bright and easy to spot. But Saturn is so far away, it's actually much dimmer. It's still brighter than most stars in the sky. But it's also orbiting the sun a lot more slowly. So it's it's moving very slowly across the sky um, over the course of weeks and months. But we knew it was a planet, uh, at least, you know, that that's planet literally means wanderer. So it's, it's an object that's moving in the sky. So it was a, a target of interest when the telescope was first built by Galileo. He didn't invent the telescope. He may not have even been the first person to point it at the sky, but he was certainly uh, the best at self-promotion at talking about what he was seeing. And when he saw Saturn, he, he, he wasn't sure what he was seeing. His telescope wasn't great. It wasn't the best quality compared to what we have now. And so Saturn looked elongated, like an oval, an ellipse. Uh, and he, he said that Saturn has ears because it looked like it had like little lumps on either side of it compared to, <laughs> say, Jupiter, which looked like a, a circle, a disk. As telescopes got better, uh, astronomers realized, hey, this is, this is a ring. This is a, a, something that's circling the planet and never touching it. And as time went on and telescopes got better, we learned more and more about the rings. And then eventually we sent spacecraft there and now we're learning quite a bit about them. But I think in those early days, uh, it must have been uh, hugely baffling to, to look at something and, and, and think, you know, what, what is it we're seeing and comparing it to everything else? And it's completely different. Things aren't that different today, honestly. We just have more sophisticated equipment. We're now looking at the edge, you know, the edge of the observable universe, galaxies that are tremendously far away, and they're baffling. You know, it's different than than maybe what we're expecting, and so it's it's really no different in 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 quality uh, than than what was happening 400 years ago when the telescopes were first pointed to the sky in the first place. So I'm curious about which which planet you'd go to or where you'd go. Oh, Saturn. Oh, there's no question. Uh, oh, really? Chapter, no, no question, oh, yeah. Saturn? <laughs> uh, writing that chapter gave me the most joy of any of, of the chapters in the book, uh, even compared to some of the things I've studied, like clusters of stars or gas clouds in space. I've actually studied those professionally. Um, but going to Saturn, I think just being able to see all of these, these, every moon of Saturn is so weird. There's one that's as big as a planet called Titan that has a thick atmosphere. Uh, one that has an immense crater on it that makes it look like uh, the Death Star from Star Wars. It's a standard joke in astronomy. Whenever you show a picture of Mimas, this, this moon, to call it the Death Star because of this giant crater in the center. <laughs> so many weird things to see. And then, my heavens, the rings. Uh, when you look at the Cassini spacecraft images of the rings, it's, it can be overwhelming. It is so beautiful and so strange to see all these rings and gaps, uh, the, the, the structures in the rings as moons pass by and create ripples and, and spires, like towers of ice, pulling, pulling the ice chunks out of the rings to make these features. To see that up close, 
I can't even imagine how how inspiring that would be. So, uh, the, the the worst it, it was also the worst thing to write because there was so much to write about. I had to leave, keep leaving stuff out. It's like, oh, this chapter is going to be fifty thousand words long if I don't stop here. So uh, it was it was the it was the best of chapters. It was the worst of chapters for me to write. It was very inspiring and exciting to read. So mission accomplished well, thank there. You. So as you've noted, <laughs> you've been a scientist for many years. Um, I'm curious about what you think of, you know, the sci-fi writer, Arthur C. Clarke, uh, his remarks that I'm a scientific expert. That means I know nothing about absolutely everything. Astronomy has changed a lot, I would assume, since you got your PhD or you got into the field. And yet, do you have that sense that Clarke obviously had that there is so much more that remains unknown and maybe unknown for many, many lifetimes. How do you how do you square that? That's science. That's that's just what it is. Uh, Clark, of course, was being a little tongue in cheek there. We know a little bit about everything that we already have sort of an understanding exists. And what I mean by that is, a hundred years ago, to, well, a little more than that, one hundred fifty years ago, we knew nothing about how atoms worked about subatomic particles. We didn't know anything about that. We didn't even know that stuff really existed. So uh, how can you know anything about that? Uh, and then as we started to learn about them, we started to learn a little bit and then a little bit more. And so we have this knowledge of the universe. We have an idea of how it formed and how it exists today and how it behaves. There may yet be, uh, how do I explain this? There may yet be realms of the universe that we have no knowledge about. 15, let's see, it's uh, 2023 now, right? Isn't that right? Um, 25 years ago, it was discovered that the expansion of the universe, something we've known for 100 years, that the universe is expanding, is accelerating. It's getting faster every day. And there's this thing out there that is pushing the universe, that's basically pumping the gas and making it accelerate. And we have no idea what this stuff is, really. It's We just hung a name on it. We called it dark energy. We don't know what it is. And so... Now we know a little bit about it. So we know a little bit about all the things that we know are out there. There's probably stuff out there that we have no idea about. So in that sense, Clark was right. We know nothing about everything. <laughs> that is science. It, it, the universe is like a jigsaw puzzle with an infinite number of pieces. And every time you, you put a, a piece in, you realize, oh, there's now space for three more. Every time you answer a question, you get three more questions. It's, that's just how this works. <laughs> uh, it's job security, which is awesome. But also, it, it's like, it, it's like if, you, if you love something, if there's a TV show you love and you find out they're making another season of it, you're very happy. That's, that's <laughs> science. There's always another season. There's always more to investigate. There's always more to love and to be curious about and to explore. And if you go into science thinking you're going to answer a question once and for all, you're aiming in the wrong direction because that's just not going to happen in general. There's always going to be more to learn. And a hundred years from now, somebody's going to say, you know, what they did was, was kind of right for what they understood, but now we have a more complete picture. That happens all the time. Okay. So this, this is perfect for a couple of questions that I have for you. Um, what is the, what would you identify as the most, I guess, vexing, knowable, unknown? Something that is solvable and feels like we might be on the precipice of better understanding it, but at the moment, it's un, it, it is unknown. 
Oh, golly. Uh, we have like, what, six hours for this show? Um, <laughs> I, I can easily, easily go that long on this. But I think um, with Malice of Forethought, what I was just talking about, I think that's it. Um, how did the universe come to be? And it, it's a very simple mm. statement. You know, we are here. We weren't always here. We know the universe is expanding and we can sort of run the clock backwards, uh, theoretically speaking, and show that the universe was smaller. I, I'm, these words are difficult to use because it's not exactly how things work, but it's close enough to get an idea that all matter was concentrated into a single space 13.8 billion years ago. And it it started expanding outward and we call this the big bang model of how the universe formed. But why, you know, why was everything in a single spot? Why did it start expanding? Why do we have this balance of energy and matter in the universe? Why is the expansion accelerating? There's so many questions we have about this tucked into that simple question of how did the universe come to be? And this started becoming a real science early in the 20th century, around you know, the 1920s, when we started realizing that these objects in space, these galaxies were actually very far away and moving away from us. The universe was expanding. And now we have dedicated missions to, to investigate this sort of thing. We can put numbers on how rapidly the universe is expanding. We can see that it's accelerating. So we know that there's something about space itself that is making it expand uh, ever, ever more rapidly. But we don't know what it is. So we're very, very close to understanding this stuff. And by close, I mean maybe in the next hundred years. I maybe I would hope sooner. Oh. I would like to have these answers. Mm -hmm. But uh, you, at the moment, we don't. And I, one of the things I love about this so much is that for thousands of years, as long as humans have been looking up to the sky or looking around and saying how did all this come to be? Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? These are questions that have been relegated to philosophy and religion. But with science now, we're starting to get answers. That's the point of science is to investigate things and try to figure out why and how. Uh, and now finally, we're at a point after all of human existence, we are now very close to being able to answer some of these questions, at least in part, and that's, again, because we are curious and we invented science. You know, earlier when you were saying, uh, if you think you know everything about a scientific question, you don't know anything because one answer opens three more doors. You know, I, I, I think, and you've probably witnessed this, there's such a misunderstanding about that, that scientific knowledge isn't static. And it isn't wrong when new information, new evidence presents itself that means you have to take another look at a theory. In fact, that's exactly what science ought to do. And yet I, I get the sense that scientific literacy um, doesn't meet this idea that we will constantly discover that we need to learn more and what we thought will not will not necessarily be what it is. What, what do you, uh, this is probably something you rant about, you know, to your wife in your own <laughs> house, but I'm, I'm just curious about um, your assessment of this, especially after the pandemic, and you saw so much misunderstanding and a lot of 
conspiratorial thinking about that. Just in general, tell me what you think. Right. I've been banging my head against my desk about that for a long time. And in fact, I don't just rant I'm to my sure. wife, although she's, she's certainly heard a lot about it. I've done this in public. I gave a talk in a local TED, uh, TEDx Boulder talk. And if you look it up, it's, it's uh, uh, science learns by making mistakes. This idea that science is just a, an amalgamation of facts. It's just a pile of facts. It's, an, it's a dictionary. And you know, the earth was formed 4.56 billion years ago. No, science is a process. It's almost like a living thing. It is growing and learning and figuring things out. And it's, it's not simply this compendium of facts because facts can be overturned. You know, if, if somebody thinks the earth is flat, you can do some simple experiments that show you, no, it's not. And so you learn by doing this and you have maybe a wrong idea. That's okay. As long as you're willing to accept that you might be wrong about it. And if new data come in, you you can expand your knowledge. That's what science is. So this, this sort of public persona, this public understanding of science, that it is simply, you know, we have investigated this and now we understand it. It's not like that at all. The problem is, if you think that's what science is, and then something comes along and says, no, this thing that we thought earlier turns out not to be correct, that erodes public trust in science. In fact, it's a, it should be exactly the opposite. It should make you confident. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm, you know, We've had politicians who are very, very sure that they're right when they are very clearly wrong. If they're not mistaken, they're <laughs> lying. We see this a lot uh -huh. uh, the past few years. Uh, yeah. I won't name names, um, but some people trump others. <laughs> um, and so it makes me very um, unconfident of somebody who is absolutely positive that they're absolutely right. Because I, it, it's a, the old expression, uh, a tree that doesn't bend will break. And so if you're not willing to accept that something you think may be wrong, now, you know, just to leave the door open, just a crack, just a little bit for that, um, that that's bad. Because in science, we find that, yeah, sometimes we have mistakes. A lot of the times, it's, it's more like we improve our knowledge. You know, Isaac Newton came up with this idea of how, how things move and how gravity works. And he was right as long as, you know, the circumstances are limited. You're not moving very fast. You don't have a lot of gravity. His equations work. Einstein came along and said, look, relativity is the way to go. Relativity explains things when you have a lot of gravity and you're moving very quickly. It replicates what Newton said. Newton was right for conditions on earth. But if you go near a black hole, say, then these equations are what you want. And even then, there's more going on in the universe that, that, you know, relativity isn't wrong. Newton wasn't wrong, but there's still more that you can add to this knowledge. So it's not so much that you're wrong. It's just that things are more complicated than we first thought. That is a, a necessary thing that comes up because of science. Dr. Philip Plate's book is called Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. And... And Philip, I hope you're right. I, I love the spirit of this book that someday maybe we're all rocket men and women. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>